Hello, and welcome to SLP Full Disclosure. I am your host, Jennifer Martin, and we are lucky enough to have the Jordan Carroll again join us. Like I said before, this is a professional that has so many areas of knowledge and just really specialized information in so many areas. So we couldn't just have one episode or two. We needed three to cover even just a fraction of the things that she knows. So before I introduce our guest, I want to tell you all about our sponsor, AMN Passport app. And on this app, you can find, book, and manage all of your travel assignments, kind of your one-stop shopping. So learn more at ammpassport.com. Once again, that is ammpassport.com. So happy to have Jordan here again. And let me tell you a little bit about her in case you have not um, seen the other episodes or listened to the others, which you absolutely should. Um, Jordan is a proud alumna of the Howard University, where she received her Master's of Science in Communication Sciences and Disorders. She earned her BA in Communicative Sciences and Disorders from the University of Redlands in Redlands, California. And she currently practices as a school-based SLP and is the owner of JRC, the SLP. Jordan has also provided services in the Bahamas, California, Guatemala, and has worked in many settings, including schools, early intervention, and hospital and hospitals. She possesses a passion for cultural competency, holistic child development, and investing in the future. And all of those are very true. So welcome, Jordan. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. I, I truly appreciate the opportunity. I love being here. So I'm excited for another conversation. Well, watch what you watch what you say. I'll just say <laughs> same time every week. I'm like, <laughs> right. It'll just keep coming back. <laughs> I know. I was going to say this makes for a good Friday. I'm like, yes, it's Friday. I get to see Jordan. So, all right. So like I mentioned, you are just a wealth of information. And if people have not checked out your website, your Instagram, which is one of my favorite Instagrams. Um, I really encourage people to do that because you just have such thoughtful, authentic content. And I learn something every time. And even if it's something I thought I knew, you help me look at it in a different way. And that's what we want is just to continually learn and, and see things differently than maybe what we we thought, how, how we thought something was. So Absolutely. Today, we're going to talk about AAE and guidance for student referrals, which is so important and so invaluable. And it's it's a conversation that probably needs to have early and often throughout the year. Um, but just for anybody who didn't listen to the others, will you give us a, a bit of a summary about just your professional journey and, and where you're at now? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm from Southern California. I went to University of Redlands, which is a small um, PWI, predominantly white institution. And then I, I had an adverse experience there. Great program, speech program, except um, for like the cultural responsiveness, the inclusion that wasn't necessarily there, but I did learn a lot. And I feel like I was really prepared to go into grad school. Um, where I went to Howard University, which is an HBCU, Historically Black College or University. So I had two very stark experiences. Um, both I wouldn't change for the world. I feel like they made me who I am today. Um, and then I went to Howard, Howard University is in Washington, D.C. So I stayed there for about four years after and worked in D.C. public schools which was, they told me, they told me my first week there, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And I think they were <laughs> correct. <laughs> um, I, I really had a great experience there as well and learned a lot very early on. Um, and both my parents are educators and are special educators. I should be more specific. So I've just been in and around um, this field or something similar pretty much my entire life. And I feel like it was a perfect fit for me. And now I do uh, have a few private clients and I also work full time uh, through telepractice and supervise some SLPAs as well. Yes. And you are very creative. Like you actually, you get to be right and left brain, which is, doesn't seem fair, but yeah, you make <laughs> some incredible, just unique uh, stickers and shirts and just, I mean, I, I really, you're so creative and the things that you, you come up with are, are just, yeah. So 
again, go to the Instagram and, and check it out because <laughs> you know, it's so it's... interesting as I would like before I started this process, I would have never labeled myself as creative. And I feel like that's something I like to tell people a lot wow. because you like you really have so many things that you can just just start doing and you'll discover like mm -hmm. talents that you have that you would have never thought I would have never called myself that like a few years ago. And now I'm like, yeah, you know, I am kind of creative, I guess. So, you know, don't be afraid to explore and just figure things out about yourself as well. Okay. I'm, I'm like shocked that you just said that because <laughs> <laughs> that I feel like, okay. Then, so there's hope is what I hear. Because I, I mean, <laughs> when I see some of your things, I'm like, how did she come up with that? How that is so clever. That is so, yeah. So yeah. wow. What a great reminder that don't, don't sell yourself short if you, no, and you're right. All. Sometimes we put those labels on ourselves. Like I am not blank. Well, how do you know? Have you tried to be exactly. blank? Have you done anything? Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's and that's a exactly reminder. where I was my whole life. I'm not creative. I'm not creative, and I think we yeah. get into this box of what creativity looks like. There's so many different ways to be creative. Yes, you're exactly right, and I think as SLPs, you have mm -hmm. to be creative because every time you're going down one road, it's not working. It's like pivot. That's yep. you're being creative. That's exactly yes. Okay, I see. This is why I might have to have you back on for a different. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm like, okay, stay, stay the course. No, right. stay, get back in your, yeah. Okay. So something that I am very much looking forward to talking with you about again is AAE and guidance for student referrals. So what is African American English, otherwise known as AAE, and how do you define that? Yes. First of all, thank you, because so many people still refer to it as AAVE, which it used to be African American Vernacular English. Um, so AAE is a rule governed dialect. It is created by Black Americans. It has been stigmatized throughout all of history as being considered less than. Um, but it is extremely rule governed. There's a lot of structure, which is why it's easy to tell when somebody is not a native speaker. It's just like speaking in another language. You can tell, like you might know a few words and phrases, but if you don't know the structure, you can tell like this was not um, a natural thing for you. Um, so it's also not only spoken by Black people. It's based in where your community is, where your culture is. It's also regional. And since like social media and all these different things, even more people have been exposed to it. So a lot of people speak AAE. You probably have said some things that come from AAE as well. So it's really important to understand like the origination of things. Yeah. And I'm so glad you point out it is... There's so much depth in history. This isn't something new, even though some people may think that it is newer. It is goes way back. Um, and can you talk a little bit about just even maybe some of the basic origins? And I, I know you mentioned a little bit, but maybe just a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So the origin of AAE is actually debated. Um, and I should say that because of this history. So it's been used, like AAE has been present as long as Black Americans have been present. Mm -hmm. So um, it has always been a thing and people really fought to remove the V from the vernacular from AAE because it um, insinuates that it's kind of more like slang um, or informal. When it's not, it can be, obviously, just like any dialect can be formal or informal, um, but it can be both. And one of the most prominent AAE speakers was Martin Luther King Jr., um, who is renowned for the way that he spoke, and he spoke in our dialect. Um, so the history is debated. Nobody knows exactly where it came from. There are different theories, like it came, it started from Creole, which is another um, African-based language, or it started in slavery as people would change the language so that their owners wouldn't um, really understand or uh, wouldn't be able to know the exact meaning of what they're saying. But it has been throughout history that it has formed and changed and it has always been there. Yeah, and I think that is so important. It's not slang. It's mm -hmm. not, that is where I think is really key that people understand that. And, yeah. um, and so what, when I think sometimes, yeah, I remember take me back to, take me back to grad school, but <laughs> thinking, okay, the difference between language and dialect. Yes. Um, 
two different things. But I will say that there has been a lot of push to get AAE considered as a second language instead of a dialect because it is so complex, because there's so many differences. And another thing that's really important is that you can come in and out of AAE, just like you can come in and out of speaking another language. And that's called code switching. So code mm-hmm. switching is when you speak a dialect, like that is your uh, normal, the way that you speak, that is typical for you. But maybe in certain situations with certain people, when you're presenting, you code switch into what would be more considered mainstream American English. So because you can do that, it's really similar to being able to go from Spanish to English or another language Mm -hmm. to um, another. So it is a very similar process to that, to being bilingual. And a term that people use often is bi-dialectal as well. Um, so the difference between a dialect and a language, though, is just how complex it is. So that's why it's kind of teetering on the line, because we don't have, it's not a complete language. It is still a dialect of English. We're still speaking English mm-hmm. um, as a language, but it is a very different version of it. Yeah, and that is such an important point because you know I bilingual English Spanish and I've worked with Spanish speaking students and families my entire career. And you're right, they go they code switch. They mm-hmm. and if we don't look at that as like, well, when they're speaking Spanish, it's slang. It's like no, they're two very distinct languages. So I think that's a really important point. And you know the the rules there are distinct rules that govern it. So it's not, yes, definitely. Like, if you don't understand those rules, it's not like, oh, well, today I will start speaking this dialect. Well, no, right. it's like any other <laughs> language. You have to understand the rules. So right. exactly. I think that's where we have to look at it is that's what creates the formality of it versus it just being this informal or slang. It's a formal rules-based way of speaking. Yes, definitely. And it's, so. it's very complex. Like I said, you can tell when somebody does not understand the rules or somebody doesn't speak it naturally because it can sound forced. It can sound like you're putting the words in the wrong places. The same way you would mm-hmm. notice those things if somebody is speaking a language that they um, did not learn, you know, formally. So it's definitely important to understand that it is formal there are rules if somebody if there's a dialectal difference it doesn't mean that that person is incorrect because they are following the rules of the dialect yeah yeah all great points so now we know and there's a lot of data to back this up that their communities of color and marginalized communities are referred for special education at they're disproportionately referred in relation to their white peers so I'd love your thoughts on this, what you've observed and, you know, some of the things that I I've heard before and, and even just with students that are speaking to like, you know, like the students that I work with that are Spanish speaking is, well, it's, you know, it's special education. It's just, it could be good for everybody. So why, you know, it's not, who cares if they're getting extra support? I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of that. Yes, absolutely. And you make a great point that, so what you're referring to is called linguistic racism. And you make a great point that is not just uh, something that AAE speakers face. It happens with any bilingual student or any Spanish speaker, anybody who does not speak mainstream American English, Mm -hmm. because a lot of SLPs and educators in general have this idea that our job is to make students speak the way that their white peers speak. And that is not our job because the way that they speak is not incorrect. So we're pathologizing who they are as a person or their culture or their language um, when that's not what we should be doing because it's, it's not wrong. And the fact that we may see it as wrong as SLPs means that we are the ones that are incorrect in that situation um, because it is not our job to create you know, I said in a post recently, we're not supposed to create these like little robots that speak in the way that white Americans want us to speak. That's not what our job is. Um, So if you are um, culturally responsive, or if you are understanding that these are differences and not a disorder, then they wouldn't be in this situation. And a lot of times, which has happened throughout history, is AAE speakers are considered less intelligent when there's proof that 
speaking a different dialect does has nothing to do with your intelligence and a lot of times just like being bilingual you're using more of your brain you you have a lot more of those uh cultural intelligence or linguistic intelligence that might not be tapped into if you only speak one language or one dialect so it has nothing to do with your intelligence and if you are not in need of services then that is problematic because you're removing that student from class or outside of um, services that they don't need. And it also causes other harm, like um, damaging their self-esteem or making them feel like who they are inherently is wrong when it's not. I think another thing that we see often is that when people are giving these labels or titles as like they have a, a articulation or language disorder when it's wrong they get stuck in the system i feel like we've all had a student that we're like this person does not need services why are they still on my caseload and if that is the case you're you're damaging that student's like um their self-esteem their reputation and if that's going to stick with them throughout their career their school career uh, that's like it's not doing them any benefit Yes, to everything that you just said. And, you know, it's, it's such a great reminder that what, when you're so many things to unpack there. So first is you're exactly right. Code switching is hard. It is, it's mentally challenging. It's, it's, it's not easy to do. And if in people that are just, you know, here, we're going to learn, you're going to learn my language, the way I speak it, that's, what's correct versus somebody that's able to switch and use two and be very versatile, it is really hard. And it's such a, I mean, I think back to when I got out of grad school, which I got out long before you, but I, the things now that I realized that we were taught, it does feel, I mean, it's one of those, okay, you know better, you do better, but there are so many pieces of it that do not feel good where mm -hmm. we're saying, it to people at a young age that are vulnerable and that they're looking to us as the educators, the ones in charge that are, they're hearing, you're not good enough because blank, blank, blank. And it's just parts of who they are. And so yeah. I just think how damaging that and what that, that plants from such a young age. And so that, yeah. you know, I, I, this is why these conversations are so important because we have a lot of influence over these students and, and, and we have to be responsible with that influence. Definitely. Um, and, and you make such a good point too about, you know, that's exactly why this idea of, well, it's just extra support. It'd be good for everybody. Not if they don't need it, they, they need to be in class. They need to be with their peers. And you're exactly right. It is. I feel like it's so much easier to get in to special education services than it is to get out. And I work with SLPs every year that are like, I, you know, they are, they speak the native language of the student they're working with. And they're looking at the goals saying, I have no idea why this student is in speech. And you're just thinking, oh, like how much have they missed out on because they're participating in something that really wasn't appropriate to begin with. Exactly. And then another thing that I think about is, all of us have extensive caseloads. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if we're not removing these students that don't need to be there, we're making things more difficult for us. And we're most likely like taking away a spot from somebody who needs to be there. If we have yes. all these kids on our caseload, we're, we're most likely not looking to put more on. But if we have these students who don't need to be there and we're taking that space from somebody that does, that's another thing that's wrong with that situation. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Yeah, because some kids, they do need that support. And we mm -hmm. are a very important resource, but there's a lot that don't. And you're right. And then they get stuck in that, that cycle and it's then they can't get out. And it's, yeah. it's unfortunate. And then you see where it's like, well, now you're a sophomore and you didn't even <laughs> yeah. need to, it, it's so I we have all a few have of those. seen those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they don't even know why they're, they're like, I don't even know why I'm here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they should have at least be a, a participating member of that. And if they're like, I don't even know why I'm here other than the fact that I've been told that I'm not doing something the way that person would have liked me to have done it. So exactly. Yeah. 
So what would be some examples um, of AAE that are common and that are not reason for referral? Yeah, great question. Um, like we said earlier, AAE is really complex. So it has to do with phonological differences, um, linguistic differences, but it's also like a very tonal language. Your voice sounds different a lot of times. There's a lot more body language. So those are things to consider as well. Um, as far as like articulation, one thing that's really popular is R-listeness. So that's, um, was really prominent in, like I said earlier, Martin Luther King, where he might say like brother instead of brother or sisterhood instead of sisterhood, like things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, final consonant deletion is a big one, um, in so many different words too. A lot of times, like a really common one is not, uh, stating the final ing and like mm -hmm. running. So you might say like mm -hmm. running, going, things like that. Mm -hmm. But it happens a lot in a lot of different words where that final consonant might not be there um, because sometimes we just drift off at the end of that word. Um, another big one is double negatives. Like I ain't going to do that. I no, I'm not like, um, what's the really important one I say all the time? Ain't nobody got time for that. Like the double, the double <laughs> negative is a really, it's a really yes. big one that we hear a lot. Um, another one, oh, I hear this in like hip hop all the time. Is so a lot of times the K is substituted for T. So like in words like um, street, it might be like the skeet or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, what else is there? Or so a lot of times that is also like uh, consonant cluster reduction that happens in the beginning and the end of our words. Uh, D for TH, so you might not say that. You might say not say TH for that. You might say the D instead, like that. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ones that are prominent. And I think another one that, or another thing that we don't talk about often when it comes to AAE, because it's all just looped into one, is that just like any other dialect, it's very regional. So mm -hmm. I, from Southern California do not speak the same AE as someone from New York or somebody from the South, which is where they say a lot of times that AAE originated, but again, that's debated. So there are a lot of differences and it's just really important to understand who your population is, where they're from, what are some common um, characteristics of that specific dialect in that region that you should focus on or pay attention to. And I think that's such a valid point, especially now that so many of us are doing virtual services. So I may be in Colorado working with somebody in the Northeast. Exactly. And so I have to, it's my responsibility to understand what's that regional dialect is. Because if I show up and say, wait, what? No, that's not right. This is, we're going to, well, then again, that's my responsibility to, to understand that region. So, yeah. and I think that we're going to see more of that is again, we can be where we live, but working with students all over the United States. Yeah. And just like you said, it's really important. It's our responsibility to know who we're working mm -hmm. with, um, whether that's in the region, the race, the culture, like who mm -hmm. are you working with? What is the population like? What are some commonalities that they share and how can I use that going into my session? And just like you said, it's really easy to go into uh, a session with the population you're unfamiliar with and say, mm, that's not right. But just because it's not right to you doesn't mean that it is generally incorrect. So it's really important to pay yeah. attention to that. And I think the other thing that when I really think about it, it seems like uh, is it's it's, you can under, even if you don't speak that dialect, you know exactly what they're saying. You understand what they're saying. So it's yes. not like <laughs> this, it's not like, I, I don't even understand what you're saying. You understand. You so, know exactly what they're saying. That's such you a big know, point. <laughs> yes. It's like, it's, you get it. You know exactly what they were communicating. So Exactly. And um, so that's a, that's a great point that I, that I ask people all the time is our job as speech pathologists is to make sure that they get their message across. If they are yes. understood by their communication partner, then what are we here for? So just because you don't like the way that somebody said something or it's unfamiliar to you doesn't mean that it needs to be corrected. Yeah. And just like any of our, our students with, when we're working on social skills or language or any, I mean, you can have those conversations about, okay, well, if you were in this setting, 
this setting that, you know, you can talk about how you're going to change your communication style slightly based on your audience, what you're doing, but overall, that's not a reason for referral. That's, you know, I mean, whereas I even know, okay, how I'm talking with my friends is going to be different than if I'm talking with, uh, one of the students I'm working with parents, you know, we all, we change and that's, I think that's important to know, but it doesn't mean that's a disorder the way, you know, because I'm not speaking this way with this group, the way I am this way with this group. So, right. And that's a good question. I get all the time is, um, well, how do I tell my students like they're, they're not supposed to write that way. Or like, how do I teach them? Mm -hmm. A lot of questions I get is, should I teach students to code switch? And I say no, because again, like nobody taught me how to code switch. That's just something that you learn, just like you said, like I I talk this way with my friends and when I'm giving a presentation, I'm going to speak another way. That's Mm -hmm. just something that, you know, you develop as you experience it. But what I do teach is there's different rules. Like there's rules for lighting, for writing. There's different rules for writing than Mm -hmm. speaking. There's different rules for when you're speaking with the teacher versus when you're speaking Mm -hmm. with the friends, you know, what's inappropriate and what's not, but that has nothing to do with the dialect that you're using. It's just, um, pragmatics more than anything. So um, those are the different rules that I that I speak on. And it's especially mm-hmm. important, which I get the question a lot, is the writing rules. So you mm-hmm. have to say like, these are distinct rules that you use when you're writing. And it doesn't mean that the way that you speak is wrong. That I, I am going to remember that because that is such a great way to phrase that. It's not, and that doesn't put this shame piece on them that what you're doing is wrong. It's just exactly like you said, there's we we understand the rules, the pragmatics of when we're in different groups and different settings, mm-hmm. we do. We automatically just adjust based on that. But it's not because one's right, one's wrong. It's it's because there's there's rules based on what we're doing. Um exactly. I like the way you put that. That's a that's a good way to think about it. And it also I think it's a good way to explain it so that they understand it, but it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm I'm doing something wrong. Because they're not. Right. Exactly. And another thing that I want to say is it is not just white SLPs. Like there is a good amount of black SLPs or just black adults in general that teach this or that, you know, make younger black students or black people feel like they're wrong for the way that they speak because Mm -hmm. the way that they were taught, which is called respectability politics, the way that they were taught is you have to be as close to what is the white norm as possible to succeed in life. That is a a general belief that a lot of black people have. And and it stems from like anti-blackness or like Mm -hmm. learned inherent racism, but it is, it's not correct. Like, so just like we're stating about these different rules and pragmatics, we have to teach these kids, like there's, you know, different rules for the way that you go about Mm -hmm. life. And you're allowed to speak what, like, in a way that comes naturally to you. You don't have to move to be closer to whiteness to succeed in life. And that's something that I really try to showcase is, you know, I'm 100% myself and I don't try to be, you know, closer to anything else. And I still consider myself successful. So I try to show that to my students and, you know, future SLPs as well. You don't have to leave any parts of you behind. Well, and I think one of the big reasons you are so successful is that you are yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, had you not, I mean, who knows, right? Exactly. I mean, if you had tried to fit into some mold, then your path would have looked very differently. So very different. I think it's such a good reminder. And I, I love that you tell your students that is by being myself and who I am, that's what's led to me having all these doors open. Right. And it's important. important. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's even, I mean, that's interesting too, you know, when you're saying the black SLPs and I feel like that would be almost harder to undo or make changes because that comes from such a deep place of, you know, and, and what was thrust onto them was also not fair or just, you know, if we look at it. So it's, I feel like those are really, you know, I know just from my Spanish speaking families, there's that I still have to, where there's that thought of, well, I don't want them, you know, where I, I, how do I only speak English to them so that they, they don't, 
you know, school's not harder and this and that. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly have to say, no, that is critical that they have Spanish. Don't stop speaking that to them. They'll get English out here. You've got to maintain that. That's important. And so, you know, it's similar in that it's, it's important and, um, we don't want, but, but that stems from the struggles that they had in not speaking. So it, it does, it's, it becomes this is vicious cycle. It is. And I love that example because it's so similar and it goes again back to how um, AAE is really similar to speaking a second language because you still have those, you know, people and for good reason that want you to speak the mainstream American English Mm -hmm. to succeed. And because that's what they were taught. You have to do this to get through, like to get through life in general, you Mm -hmm. have to be this way. And it's, it's deeper than language. It's like the way you wear your hair, the way you dress, like all these different things come from that belief that they were taught that I have to be this way to go through life successfully. When that has changed, thankfully, mm-hmm. and is continuing to change because people are understanding how important it is to maintain that culture or maintain, you know, the, the linguistic differences. So um, just like you said, with the Spanish speaking families, it comes from a very deep rooted place and that can be hard to unlearn but it's our job to continue talking about this and saying how important it is to maintain your culture and maintain those that language um and continue to be yourself and not be ashamed of that yes absolutely and yeah and it's it doesn't come from a a bad place of wanting them to fit in this mold because it 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 comes from a, a, a place of i don't want you to have the struggles that i had but then exactly. it's also, oh, it's so, so many layers because it's like, I don't want you to have the struggles, but they shouldn't have even had those struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't even fair that they had them. So it's right, like, right. But you're right. And then At it some puts point the we... onus. Go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> I'm just going to say it, it puts the onus on a lot of times the younger person to understand, yes. like, I know why they believe this and it's my responsibility to maintain who I am. So it's hard to find yeah. a balance but you have to understand both sides. Yes. Uh, it's, there's, this is, it's, this is a, a deep topic. It is, there's a lot of layers. So, okay. W- with our listeners, if they're listening and they're thinking, yeah, this is absolutely happening to some degree. And in, with the students that I work with, what are some steps or things that they can start thinking about you know, to, as referrals come in to say, you know, is this appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, a really big one, because a lot of times a, AAE speakers are referred for their articulation or phonological differences. So a really big one is to make sure that that student is stimulable for a sound. If they're not producing the G at the end of um, a word, but they can produce it in other places, they can produce it independently, they have the skill, they're stimulable, they're able to do it, then it's not a disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, maybe if their academics are impacted, then that's something you wanna consider, or if their reading or something like that is impacted, then that's something you would consider. But if they're stimulable for the sound, or um, they are, not under or if they are understanding directions if their expressive language is fine you understand what they're saying but maybe you don't like the way that they said it but doesn't mean that it's a disorder or that they mm-hmm. should you should move forward with the referral um but if they are demonstrating those concerns like if they are having di- difficulty expressing wants needs thoughts ideas if they have um their articulation is impacting the way that they're understood you know, things like that, then Mm -hmm. it's our responsibility to know what the difference is. And that goes back to knowing the population and knowing what the dialectal differences in that area might be so that you're prepared to move forward. Yeah. So just that educating again, what, what is expected? Um, and you know, even thinking who would you recommend even, you know, speaking with the, the students, parents to kind of see, you know, are you having any difficulty? Do you see things at home? Do you see things when they're with peers asking the teacher what, if they have any, and this is challenging too, because if the teacher is also like a a white SLP and you get the white teacher and they're both, neither of them understands, then this is where it's important to have those, 
those conversations where, you know, if the teacher brings that referral, say, okay, well, you know, maybe that's a good place for the SLP to say, well, actually this, this dialect, it's, it's very appropriate. And Mm -hmm. there's, isn't there, there is no disorder. Um, or how do you, what do you think about like, you know, if it's a teacher bringing this referral and you as the SLP do look into this and do have a good understanding and say, no, do you think just having that conversation with the teacher or what do you recommend? Yeah, I think um, it's really important, I think, in, in any situation to get as much information from the teacher or whoever's providing the referral mm-hmm. and having a conversation with parents um, or mm-hmm. other people that have just uh, spend time with the student to get an understanding of what their communication looks like. So if I have a referral from a teacher that is only they don't say the TH, when I know that mm-hmm. in AAE, a lot of times the TH is not going to be present then that's a conversation I would have with the teacher and say, well, I can't accept this referral because this is a dialectal difference. It's not a disorder. And if I see the student and I know that they're stimulable, they're able to produce that sound, then there's no need for me to move forward with that referral. I do get the question a lot about what if parents want me to quote unquote fix. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask that. (laughs) Yeah, I get that question a lot. Um, so I think it depends on the situation because for Mm -hmm. me, any school district I've worked in, if the, um, disorder or concern was not impacting their academics, they're not going to qualify. So Mm -hmm. if your only concern is a sound that they're not producing and as a parent or a teacher and their academics are fine, their communication is fine. People understand Mm -hmm. them. They get along with people socially. Then I'm not going to accept that referral. But Mm -hmm. if the parent is still like, no, I I want them to not speak this way anymore, then I would suggest, you know, there's outside services that may accept this. There's outside services that you can look into or, you know, there are even resources online that can, you know, show you how to adjust um, the way that you're, you know, maybe the place manner or Mm -hmm. voicing of that sound. Um, So there, there are ways that you can handle that situation without saying, I'm going to take this kid just because the parent wanted me to, because, you know, that's really just not how the system works, at least in the schools. Um, But it is something that happens a lot because it goes back again to the parents wanting the students to be successful. So I think it's our job to explain, like, this is not harming them. They're still doing well in school. They're still going to continue to do well. They do well socially. They're expressive. You know, they understand language. They follow directions. This is not something that's harming them. And if it's a part of your culture, then there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing that needs to be fixed. However, there are options, you know, if you want to continue to look Mm -hmm. outside. Yeah. And that's such a great point that, I mean, we have to look at this, that any other referral that came through, if it's not impacting, you know, if, if all those things you stated, we wouldn't see them. So this Mm -hmm. should be no different that, you know, there, we've probably all had times where the parents said, I want this, but it's not impacting their education. And, you know, as school-based SLPs, we, we work with what do we need to do to support their educational success? And so you're right. I mean, that would be, I think, really appropriate. And I think there's times too, where, you know, it doesn't have to be I think sometimes we kind of go into these thinking, oh, this is going to be adversarial. We're going to have to, but I I think just a lot of it is sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And, Mm -hmm. or if you've, like I said, when I got out of grad school, the things that we were taught are not the things that we now know to be best practice. So if I'm continuing to do something that I like, well, I've always done it this way, but somebody is able to help me understand, well, Mm -hmm. you know, now we know this and that can help us make our decisions differently. You know, we want that also. Um, but I, um, I do think it can be just like you said, Hey, let's, let's have a discussion about this and mm-hmm. let, let's talk about whether it's with the parents, the teacher, helping them understand all the things that that student is doing really well and that these things are not impacting. And then by taking them out of class, these are the things they're missing And because anytime you say yes to something, you got to say no to something else. So it's like, what is, are they getting more benefit by being pulled out of class to work on something that seems important, but really isn't 
like right. a, a problem versus being in class and and being part of that. So, right. yeah, and I it's mean, definitely a conversation I've had often with teachers and parents. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like I said, it's our responsibility to let them know like this is this is not wrong. There is nothing wrong with yeah. the way that your child is speaking. They're still mm -hmm. doing great. They're going to continue to do well. And if they're ever not doing well, then we can revisit this conversation and see if there's something that we need um, to input any support that we can mm -hmm. give them. But yeah, and I think it can get really sticky because, you know, AAE is, it has to do with race, it has to do with culture. So people, yeah. especially white SLPs may feel more inclined to, uh, you know, want to do what the parent is asking. But like mm -hmm. you said, there's no difference between when a parent is asking for services that they, their child doesn't need. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. Um, there's other layers of race and dialect and culture, but it's the same situation. So mm -hmm. it would be the same conversation. Yeah. And the things I'm thinking too, as we're talking through that, this may be some of the, I mean, these, these parents may have heard over and over that this isn't right. They're not doing this right. This is about mm -hmm. their child. And so that's the voices in their head. And, and by having these conversations, by saying they're doing amazing and they're doing they're they're there's no issue here. That may be some of the first time they're hearing that. And, exactly. and that's important also for them to understand there is nothing wrong. There's nothing yeah. to be fixed here because there's nothing broken. And yeah. And, and again, I, I don't want listeners to, I want this to be a conversation where people feel like it is, you know, it's not a attacking thing, but it's a, we, we know better, we've got to do better. And so, and, and like, to your point, our caseloads are only getting larger. Mm -hmm. So being very mindful about why are we, why do we have the students that we have on our caseload? And what's the benefit of them continuing or for them to work with me versus right. being with their peers in class? Like we really have to just start looking at that in a broader way. Absolutely. And I have been in situations where I've, you know, you walk into caseloads, you're just handed things. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been in situations where the student was not black. Let me say this. The student was not black. They were Latino, but they spoke mm -hmm. AAE the dialect that they spoke was AAE and they, all of their goals had to do with AAE. <laughs> and so <laughs> I walked into the situation. Thankfully yeah. their like IEP was going to be up in a couple months. Mm -hmm. And so I walked into the situation, like I cannot wait to exit this student off my caseload and just yeah. not pull them out of class anymore because they yes. don't need it. Um, and I sat in, you know, for me mm -hmm. in any situation I've been in, you have to test the student out. Yeah. So I, you know, give them the articulation assessment. They did, you know, produce some mm -hmm. characteristics of AAE. And I remember going over that in the IEP meeting and saying, your student, they still performed within the average range. Mm -hmm. These are quote unquote errors according to the test that they produced. However, mm -hmm. they are um, aligned with the dialect that the child speaks. And mm -hmm. I have no further concerns. The student does not need to be you know, receiving speech and language mm -hmm. services anymore. And the parents were overjoyed. They were so happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a great conversation because they thought something was wrong with their child. Yeah. And I, I had the you know opportunity to tell them that's not the case. And the child is mm -hmm. so smart. Like they were super smart. They had everything going for them. They were doing well in school and they spoke AAE. And I was just so happy to, mm -hmm. you know, get them to understand that there's nothing wrong with this. Um, and they do not need to be pulled out for services anymore. So those are conversations that you ha can have and they can go really well. And it could really mm -hmm. be, like you said, the first time that a parent has heard this positive thing about their, their child. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to ask about, so in what, so elaborate on what something you just said. So we often, we inherit caseloads and, you know, mm -hmm. we're going through and you can start to see wow, this goal is just changed by a percentage for the last five years. It's like, mm -hmm. why are we even doing this? And so if an SLP has students on their caseload that they're looking and saying, gosh, they really aren't appropriate for this, you know, starts to dig in deeper, realize they probably shouldn't be receiving services anymore. What do you recommend for how, you know, how, 
and you were kind of touched, you already touched on, you know, how to kind of have those conversations, but exiting these students. And then, you know, sometimes when we do have to have this standardized test score, those aren't, you know, the self isn't going to be our friend in this area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not going to help. So <laughs> how do you go about doing that when you say, I know they're not appropriate to be here anymore. They're not going to be, they're better. They're not, this is not an academic issue. They need to be off. How do you exit them or what data do you use for that? Right. So I really am grateful for my experience in grad school because we were taught all about dynamic assessment. So yes, we use standardized assessment, but we use other information as well. So um, I'll use the standardized assessment. I'll use the self. I'll use the Goldman Fristo and get that information. And from that information, especially on the Goldman Fristo, um, I will like compare to the way that they speak to the dialect that I know that they are speaking and if it follows the rules. So for me, I have different tools that I use to compare. So I have, um, I created a AAE reference sheet that has a bunch of characteristics, whether it's from language, morphology, um, just different grammatical differences, articulation differences that are just all on this like reference sheet that I can go into and show them in the meeting and say, this is what they produce and this is the rule that it follows in the dialect and this is why it's not incorrect. So that cancels out this error or this missed item. Um, And I can Mm -hmm. go through that. I can do that in the self because in the self, there's a lot of, um, you know, like uh, verbal responses that they have to give Mm -hmm. that you write down verbatim. So I can see what they said verbatim and compare it to what is a rule in the dialect and show them in the meeting, like, this is what I'm comparing it to. This is how it follows the rules. And this is why, even though it might be considered um, a missed item in the assessment, I know that it's not necessarily a missed item for the dialect that they speak and it's not impacting their academics. It's not impacting their expressive or receptive language or anything like that. So for me, I just make sure, you know, people, we always use evidence-based practice. I go into the meetings with evidence. I go into the meetings with the, this is the dialect they speak. This is what I'm comparing it to. And this is why um, this is not considered a a disorder. It's just a Mm -hmm. dialectal difference. And so for that reason, they do not, um, they're not eligible for these Mm -hmm. services. Okay. That's great. And do you, do you have that reference, that resource that you, that people can purchase or find? Is that, because what a valuable, like you've done a lot of work for people. (laughs) (laughs) I do. So there's two that I have, um, on, I think it's on my website, on Etsy, on Teachers Mm -hmm. Pay Teachers. One is the AAE reference sheet where it has the language morphology um, and articulation differences, Mm -hmm. and it has some tips for a culturally responsive assessment. So it'll give you some information there as well. And then I also Mm -hmm. have um, a sheet of just phonological processes, just the regular ones, Mm -hmm. but it also has considerations for AAE. So next to cluster reduction, it'll have an asterisk and it'll tell you, you know, this is Mm -hmm. a common characteristic of AAE, this is something to consider and look deeper into if you have a dialectal speaker that is producing the cluster reduction. This is an amazing resource and we'll put how to, we'll put all the information in the show notes because I'm thinking I would love if I am going to go and come with data and again, not Mm -hmm. just come from a place of this is what I've learned and I now know I want to share this with you, my colleagues, because this is really important for us to see and understand. I think that it would be a valuable resource, not only for us as SLPs, but for when we are having conversations with our other, the teachers and other people we work with that work with those students to be able to see that, that, Hey, this is absolutely appropriate based on this, this, this. And, and you're right. It's one thing if, if you come and say, well, I think, or this isn't, I mean, that's not inaccurate, but having that written and that information is, I think would be a very great tool to bring to meetings with parents, teachers, even working with a student to say, you know, this is the, what a great celebration that you're not going to need to be in speech anymore because Mm -hmm. look, all the things you're doing, we would expect that that's part of your dialect. That's you're doing, you're, you're speaking your dialect appropriately. So there's no reason for you to be here anymore. So (laughs) exactly. And that's something, again, I'm 
well, now that I'm thinking about it, they taught us in grad school, like always come with the backup information. If you're going mm-hmm. to, you have something to say in the meeting, have something like evidence to show them. So it's not just your word versus somebody else's. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with me going to an HBCU and historically mm-hmm. black college or university, because mm-hmm. one of the common statements that we hear that I've heard my whole life is you have to be twice as good to get half as far. So mm-hmm. that means that you have to, you have to back up what you're saying. You can't just say I'm the expert and this is what I think. Like, mm-hmm. no, you have to prove it. Um, so that's something, that's why I created these resources because I knew that I, I had to prove it. I had to put this information mm-hmm. down in a way that was digestible for people to see. So it's not just my word and yeah. you know, this is the proof, this is the evidence. Yeah. And there was a lot of work that went into that. That was, yeah. that's not just <laughs> made up. It's, 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 again, it's, it's rule based. You're writing down mm-hmm. the rules. And, and when people look at that, they'll be able to see, oh yeah, that's exactly, yep. They do this, 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 it, because it's rules. <laughs> so they're exactly. going to, they're going to align. <laughs> so, uh, and, and again, if, if they don't and they need the support, great, that's what we're here for. But if you don't, then they don't. Yeah. Um, and I know, you know, you said, and you know, going to an HBCU, it sounds like it just really you, you got a lot of extra information and critical information in these areas, but what do you think, how, what's your, and I know you do a lot of work with new grads, are graduate programs for the most part, and I know, you know, there's a lot and I know they're very different, but do you feel like they're doing a better job of talking about this Why students are in grad school so that they're leaving with a better understanding and not having to relearn all these things now that we know better? Yeah, great question. I I would say it's improved, you know, slightly mm-hmm. or maybe not slightly because I can't even imagine what it would have been like 20, 30 years ago. So I'm there is a difference. This is it's mm-hmm. something that is mentioned. However, in my like it was mentioned in every course. Every course that I took in grad school had a mm-hmm. culture responsive element to it or this is what it might look like for other cultures. And obviously not just mm-hmm. black culture. Like we, yeah. we considered all of them. We had an entire sociolinguistics class where we just, all we talked about was dialectal differences or oh. cultural differences. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. very grateful for that. And, and I know that every <laughs> grad school is not like that. So from what I'm hearing, it's most of the time if there's um, a conversation about cultural responsiveness or dialectal differences, it's, it's like a slide in a presentation. It's not necessarily something that they're diving deeper into. And that's why a lot of grad students come to me still and like do not have that information. So it's improved as in it's spoken about or like it's known. But I think the problem is that a lot of the current professors have been in the same role for so long and are not necessarily moving with the time. So they might be told like, you have to, you have to say this in your presentation, this is something you have to mention, but they're not going deeper into it because they don't know. They're not, they don't have the knowledge to do so. I think it would be really beneficial if um, colleges, professors, courses brought in speakers to talk about those specific issues and topics so that the students have the opportunity to ask the questions that the professor might not be as familiar with which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Clearly you specialize in something, you know, if you're a professor, but you're not going to be able to specialize in everything. So I think it would be really important to do, you know, bring those people in that can answer those questions. Yeah. I think that's a great suggestion because you're right. We can't all, we have our niche areas. We can't Mm -hmm. be an expert in everything. No, except for you, you kind of, I'm like, you kind of are a little bit, but anyway, um, but it is, I think that is where it's so important because I remember taking, um, like a cultural awareness class. Some, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was something, but it didn't cover any of this, mm-hmm. you know, none. It was a little bit of, um, you know, you're going to test in their native language and then, you know, in, in their non-native language, and then you're going to compare, but it really didn't go dig deep on these things. And it didn't, I think what happens too is, you know, you get out of grad school, you're brand new. And so if you don't have this information and you go in and take over a caseload, there's that feeling of, well, I don't want to rock the boat. And obviously the student's been, and so, but if you had that information where you could say, 
you know, when I'm looking at this, this just doesn't add up and have that confidence to be able to, to say, why, why has this student been doing this? I think that could make such a difference, especially as a new grad. We just, mm -hmm. we need, we, they need this information. It's, it's important just as if something changed within the way that they assess swallowing, you wouldn't exactly. say, well, we're not going to change that because we've always done that. It's like, no, you're going to stay ahead of that. This is no different. Not at all. So yeah, I think yeah. it's it's really important just to keep up with the times and times change mm -hmm. very quickly. So, and obviously yeah. as individuals, we can't keep up on our own. So if there's something yeah. that you're not sure about, bring somebody in who is, you have the, all the opportunity yes. to do that. Yes. And if you are, let's say you're part of Nishla or one of the groups have this, this is, this would be a great topic to have somebody mm -hmm. come and speak to, to your group. So if you're not getting that support necessarily from professors or they're not, then t do it. You got to just, you know, take advantage of, of the, of the resources and sometimes go out and, and do it on your own and be proactive. Absolutely. And I've told grad students that often like you mm -hmm. you don't know the power that you have if you went mm -hmm. to your your clinic director and said i need to learn about this and we're not covering it in the class can you bring somebody in to talk about it they're likely to have that happen for you mm -hmm. even if you have a suggestion for somebody you want to come or a specific topic that you know you need to learn about like mm -hmm. do not be afraid to bring that up because you are you're paying a lot of money <laughs> to be in grad school so you yes. need to figure out how you're going to make the most of it and get everything mm -hmm. out of it that you can. Yeah. And this is only going to just make you more well-rounded and knowledgeable so that you have the information. So you, that when you, when you see something, you can say something like exactly that doesn't add up. So, okay. So speaking, getting back to resources, if a listener is saying, I want more. So we are the resource that you mentioned, we're going to, link to that. I think everybody should have that. If you work in a school or kids at all, or even adults, you should have that. It's critical. Um, what other resources would you suggest if, if somebody says, I want to, I want to do better. I want to know more. Where can they go? Definitely. My biggest recommendation, there's a book called Linguistic Justice by April Baker Bell. And it covers all of the history that we're talking about. It covers the like origin of linguistic racism. And it just helps you understand where, why you believe what you believe and how to do better by, you know, non-mainstream English speakers. Um, so that's a really big one, linguistic justice. My two okay. resources, the AAE reference sheet and then the phonological processes with AAE considerations. Um, you can follow me. I talk about differences in AAE all the time. Mm -hmm. And then there's one assessment that is standardized on AAE speakers, and that's called the DELV, D-E-L-V. I forgot what it stands for right now, but D-E-L-V, and I'll send information so you can link that as well. Um, awesome. And that's standardized on, it's the only one I'm aware of that is standardized on AAE speakers. So if you can get that into your toolbox, mm -hmm. that would be great to have. Yeah, great suggestions. and. Uh, I know this is a big conversation and we, I could just, you know, stay all week. We could talk about this, but Jordan, <laughs> I really appreciate this is, these are important conversations and I don't care if you're a new grad or been doing this for 20 plus years, these are important conversations. And so I just want people to really listen to this, think about it, think about what your role is. And again, these aren't like you're doing something wrong. It's just, again, we know better. We do better. I, yeah. every day I have to change something that I was like, well, I thought yesterday I was doing that right, but today I know I need to make changes. And that's just, um, ultimately will be, that is ultimately the best outcomes for these children that we are working with. It's yeah. for them. So, um, so thank you so much for coming on and, um, just for, bringing this up and, and having so much knowledge and, and guidance on this. 
Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for providing the opportunity for people yes. to hear about this and learn about this. Um, I think it's really important and I'm just, I'm glad that we have the platform to talk about it. Absolutely. Anytime. Like I said, every Friday, <laughs> you have a platform if you want it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jordan. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning into SLP Full Disclosure. For more information about this episode, check out the show notes on our website at medtravelers.com slash SLP Full Disclosure. And don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss a guest. Are you interested in becoming a travel SLP? Visit medtravelers.com to learn more and explore the exciting opportunities we offer at top level facilities across the country. Also, a special thanks to Jonathan Carey for producing this episode and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. And as always, this episode was powered by Med Travelers. See you next time.